the midst of a sermon series that's gonna carry us through the end of August, a journey through the book of Ecclesiastes. As many of you have heard me say week in and week out, it's one of the most criticized, complex, and confusing books in all the Bible. A book including its fair share of interpretive challenges. Make no mistake, there's the, the question of authorship. Some believe the author to be Solomon, others, someone later in Israel's history identifying with Solomon. There's the, the question of the meaning of the word vanity, which shows up more than 30 times throughout the book and can be translated in multiple ways. There's the, the question of what it means to live life, quote unquote, under the sun. That phrase itself with its own complexity of meanings showing up nearly 30 times throughout the book. But I think the biggest question having to do with the interpretation of the book of Ecclesiastes is the question of whether or not the author intends to give us the answers that we're looking for in the book itself or whether he intends to direct us beyond his writing to find our answers. Let me try to frame this in a way that I haven't up to this point in this series. I wanna throw a couple of charts on the screen if you're a chart person, you're probably salivating at the mouth right now, really excited about this. You'll notice up on the screen that I've got three different columns because this is kind of a simplistic way of thinking about how to study the scriptures. When we come to the Bible, we first observe. There's observation. What does it say? What, what, what are the words? What is the author saying? And then there's interpretation. What does it mean? What is the author trying to communicate to us? And then lastly, there's application. What does it matter? What are we supposed to, to do with it in light of what it says and what it means? And so to give you a couple of examples out of the book of Ecclesiastes, there are two primary ways to interpret this book of the Bible. There are others besides the two, but most scholars and commentators fall into two camps. The first being a camp that would see many positive ideas and thoughts coming out of the book of Ecclesiastes. So to give you an example, if you can see this, chapter two, verse 24, the author of Ecclesiastes says, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. It's one of these calls to enjoyment that are seen throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. There are some that interpret a statement like that as to say, the key to happiness is contentment with the good gifts God has given us. You'll, you'll read a number of commentaries that would talk that way. You might even find articles on uh, well-known websites that we all would go to, to to look at blogs and article writings and so forth and so on. You notice I put a smiley face under that interpretation because it's, it's optimistic, it's happy. The key to content, uh, happiness is contentment with the good gifts God has given us so that application is be content to enjoy God's good gifts, tracing them to the giver himself. That's one way to interpret a a verse like chapter two, verse 24. A second way to interpret it would be to say that when we read that phrase, there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. The second way to interpret that is that what the author means is that the best that we can hope for is that God might give us good things and the power to enjoy them so that we might be distracted from the vanity of life under the sun. There is a frowning face under that because it's not optimistic, right? It's very pessimistic. So that the application, if you interpret it that way, is praise be to God that he's not the great giver of distractions, but rather the great giver of himself in Jesus Christ. In him, we can learn the secret of contentment in any situation, doing it all to the glory of God's smiley face. 
I've argued from the very beginning of this series that the second option is the better option, not just on a micro level when you actually study the verses and the paragraphs that they're, they're found in, but on, on a macro level when you study the book from start to finish and all of the contents in between the bookends of beginning and end. It's hard for us to, to get our minds around because it's part of the 66 books that make up the canon of scripture. How can it not at some point be optimistic? And yet when you look at the Old Testament, you don't get all the answers that you're looking for. You get shadows that point to something that's to come in the New Testament. And so I think there's space for that. And many commentators would agree there. Notice in, in those two application points that come out, and this is another reason that, that I find myself compelled to the second of these two options is, the first is about you. Be content. It's about your contentment. The second is about God. He's not the great giver of distractions, but the great giver of himself in Jesus Christ. And thus, we can be content in every situation. I'm not saying that, that if you fall into camp number one, that you're not in good company, you are. Again, there are a lot of people who would interpret the book of Ecclesiastes that way. I'm just not personally convinced and thus have been running in the, the second direction here. I'll give you another example. Um, in chapter five, verse seven, you see this phrase, God is the one you must fear. That there's this, this language of the fear of the Lord that many would argue under the category of interpretation. What does he mean when he says that? He means the key to happiness is a Proverbs-like fear of the Lord. Reverence, love, and humility leading to obedience so that the application would be bend your knee in glad submission to the one true king. Both interpretation and application, happy, optimistic. The second way to interpret that phrase, God is the one you must fear in chapter five, verse seven, is to say that the author means that we should watch our step, that God is distant and unpredictable. You never know what he might do. Pessimistic in terms of what he means to say. And yet that the application would be very optimistic, which would be praise be to God that we can confidently draw near to him by grace through faith in the finished priestly work of Jesus. The author of Hebrews tells us that. And it's that kind of grace that fans into flame true fear of the Lord, reverence, love, and humility leading to obedience. So that you, you begin to see as you look at a chart like this, that those who fall into the second camp would say that you don't have to run so quickly under the, the category of interpretation to something hopeful and yet you still get there under the category of application. I think that's important to, to process through because I really do believe it, it's the, the greatest question in terms of how to interpret this book of the Bible. More than authorship, even more than getting the word vanity right, is, is how do you frame this thing? I've said from the very beginning, I'm not... I'm not at all convinced that the author of Ecclesiastes intends to give us the answers that we're looking for, but rather to point us outside of his very writing. Tim Keller says it this way. He says, Ecclesiastes is not the place we find answers. It's in the rest of the Bible that we find answers. This man's job is to push you to the logical conclusion of your position. This man's job, meaning the author of Ecclesiastes, is to lay bare the foundations of your life to push you to the boundaries of your thought, to say, why do you believe that? Why do you believe that? And if you believe that, do you see what that leads to? Do you see what that leads to? To, to push you because he knows that none of us, Keller says, have got the spiritual and intellectual guts to really look and ask the question, why, 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 about everything we do and everything we believe. 
that it's the Socratic method at its best. The author presenting the reader with questions ultimately meant to scrutinize his or her commonly held beliefs. That in asking some of the very same questions that philosophers have grappled with for ages, the author of Ecclesiastes helps to clarify what we should be asking the rest of the Bible before and after his writing so that we might see and experience the meaning and joy of a life lived in glad submission to the triune God. So with that said, if you have a Bible, you can open up to Ecclesiastes chapter eight. It's where we'll be this morning. If you're looking at your watch, I promise this won't be long. We'll get to the end of it soon enough. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one from one of the seats in front of you underneath and use that Bible. If you don't own a Bible, that's yours, our gift to you. Let me pray for us and we'll dive in and we'll get going this morning. God, thank you so much for the opportunity to be a part of something bigger than us, to be connected to a diverse global family of church planting churches that are centered on and have the heartbeat of the gospel of Jesus Christ at their core. Thank you for what you're doing in and through this particular expression of our network, Crosspoint Peachtree City. Thank you for this book of the Bible. Thank you for not giving us 65, but rather 66 books, this one included. It's your grace to us. It is profitable to us. God, I pray that you would move and stir in our hearts, our minds, that you would open our eyes, our ears to receive, to hear, to see that which you have for us. Holy Spirit, would you move? Without you, we are hopeless. This is a futile, man-centered effort apart from your power. God, would you flex? Would you show yourself big and strong Would you level us where we need to be brought low? Would you comfort us where we need to be lifted high? I ask all of this in the name of the risen Savior and King, Jesus Christ, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Going back to last week, if you weren't here, the author of Ecclesiastes closes out chapter seven with with really what amounts to two philosophical conclusions. Number one, that all are sinners in this world in which wickedness pervades society, And secondly, it's impossible to make sense of the world in which we live. Both very pessimistic, right? Here in chapter eight, he continues to bring those two philosophical conclusions to bear. Verse one of chapter eight, he says this, who is like the wise and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. Right off the bat, I want us to notice the the two bookends that make up this chapter. The author begins with a couple of questions in verse one. Who who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? He ends chapter eight with his answer to those two questions in verse 17 where he says, even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. You have the word wise, you have the word know in both verse one and verse 17 so that What those two bookends tell us is that everything in between verses one and 17, it's the substance of the authors arriving at the conclusion that life is incomprehensible. You begin to see it in verse two. He says, I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go out from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme and who may say to him, what are you doing? Here here the author makes the point that that wisdom isn't supreme, that wisdom may be more advantageous than folly, generally speaking, but that wisdom is worthless in the presence of the supreme power of a king. 
that a king is gonna do whatever pleases the king, even in the presence of the wise. So that a wise person can uh, even go so far with his words or her words of wisdom as to get himself or herself in trouble in the presence of the king. That it, wisdom can go badly for you. In other words, verse five, he goes on to say, whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there's a time and a way for everything. If you've been around for the better part of this series, that may sound that language familiar to you. Going back to the poem in chapter three, he says, for everything there's a season, a time for every matter under heaven. He says, the wise heart will know not only the right action to take, but the proper timing of that very action. But as we also saw back in chapter three, he argued that we can't see behind the curtain. He said, back in chapter three, he has put eternity God has into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. God's the great and powerful odds, and you can't throw back the curtain, according to the author of Ecclesiastes, which leaves us incapable of planning for or controlling the circumstances of our very lives. Going back to an old Derek Kidner quote in this series, Kidner says, we are like the desperately nearsighted inching their way along some great tapestry or fresco in the attempt to take it in. We see enough to recognize something of its quality, but the grand design escapes us for we could never stand back far enough to view it as its creator does, whole and entire from the beginning to the end. That we live in an ordered world with its rhythms and seasons, and yet we're incapable of figuring out the meaning of God's activity in the world. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, Deuteronomy 29, 29. We cannot see the full picture. We're limited in our understanding. Coming back to this morning's passage, he says, verse six, there's a time and a way for everything, but notice how he finishes that sentence at the end of verse six. Although man's trouble lies heavy on him, for he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. The trouble, troubles of life, he says, verse six, weigh heavy on our minds and in our hearts, clouding our judgment, bringing our discernment into question. Not only that, he says, verse seven, how can we live according to wisdom when we have no idea what will happen next in life? Our lives are constantly in adjustment to the things that we didn't see coming, right? And it's not just a lacking knowledge, but also a lacking power, he says. Verse eight, we don't hold the keys to life and death. None of us decreed when we would be born. None of us knows when we will breathe our last breath. In the trenches of warfare, he says, when the bullets are flying and man stands at death's door, discharging oneself from the battle is not an option. We're enlisted in this embattled world of corruption that we're powerless to escape. Wickedness itself, powerless to deliver us. All that imagery in verse eight is about lacking power in this life. To sum it up, verses six through eight, wouldn't it be nice, he says, to possess the wisdom to make good decisions in their proper timing? If only our judgment weren't clouded by the difficulties of life, if only we had the power and knowledge to act rightly in every situation. Verse nine, he says, all of this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to his hurt. See evidence of, of that this very week, right? In the school systems that are very part of, of our 
country, our reality. Man has power over man to his hurt. How can wisdom fix it? Coming back to the king in verse two, he says, not only are the wisest people lacking in power and knowledge, but those in power over them hinder them from living in accordance with the very wisdom that they do possess. It's not just human governance, though, that's the problem. He goes on to address God's governance of the world. Look at verse 10. He says, when I saw the wicked buried, or excuse me, then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him, but it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. There's a vanity, he says, that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. Again, not the first time that we've seen this language in the book of Ecclesiastes. Back at the end of chapter three, the author declared God to be the ultimate executor of justice, and yet at the same time declared his frustration with God's delay in actually executing justice. He delays his judgment, which frustrates the author as he looks upon the wickedness that pervades society, that in God's choosing not to execute justice swiftly, He argues that man not only has more time to do evil, but is compelled to do more evil since there's no seeming consequence to it all. A world in which, verse 10, he says, wicked people go in and out of the house of worship, going through the ritualistic motions with hearts that are far from God. And not only do they not get punished for their wickedness, they receive the praises of people in the city. My goodness, does that not sound a little bit like the American South? He says, this also is vanity. And notice that that he goes back and forth in his assessment. Verse 12, it's the sinner prolongs his life. In verse 13, it's the wicked will not prolong his day. And then he's back around to the first conclusion in verse 14, the wicked get what the righteous should receive. Many scholars believe that, that he's giving both a declarative, this is the way it should be, along with a declarative, this is the way it is. The way it should be, a direct correlation between action and consequence The way it is, everything seems arbitrary. So that, verse 15 of chapter eight, he says, and I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat, drink, and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil throughout the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Again, coming back to the first chart from earlier, the two ways of interpreting the book of Ecclesiastes. Some see this verse as an oasis in a desert of pessimism, the solution to the the problem that the author of Ecclesiastes is seeking to solve, that man has nothing better. That phrase is used in the sense that there's nothing better than a good steak or a nice sunset under that interpretation. Others argue that verses like these are no more optimistic than any other aspect of the book, presenting us with the author's resigned conclusion, the acceptance of of something unpleasant that he can't do anything about. That phrase, man has nothing better, used in the sense that this is the best that we can hope for under the sun, which I'm inclined to, to agree with. Again, going back to chapter three, verse 22, see one of these calls to enjoyment where he says, so I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. That's your lot in life. 
Chapter five, verse 18. Behold, what I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat, drink, and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. If you go back to the sermon on uh, chapter five, the, the portion on verses 18 through 20, you'll notice that part of that is, is God establishing a distraction from the misery and vanity of life under the sun. We'll see in just a moment, another example, chapter nine, verses seven through 10, where he says, go eat your bread in joy, drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Sounds really positive so far, right? Notice what he goes on to say. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that God has given you under the sun because that's your portion in life and in your toilet which you toil under the sun. Listen to how he finishes out this call to enjoyment. He says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might for there's no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you're going. Sheol being the place of the dead. Enjoy your future. That's a call to enjoyment in the book of Ecclesiastes. Like maybe words like those found at the end of chapter eight are not hopeful optimism in a sea of pessimism. I'll give you one more example outside of the book of Ecclesiastes. In Luke chapter 12, you find the parable of the rich fool. And, and within that parable, the fool himself, and Jesus is telling this parable, the fool himself says, I will say to my soul, soul, you have made ample goods laid up for many years, Relax, eat, drink, be merry. If you have any cross-references in your Bible or if you brought a study Bible with you this morning or your app has cross-references, however you choose to engage God's word this morning, most of our Bibles in Luke chapter 12 reference back to Ecclesiastes chapter two, verse 24, one of these calls to enjoyment. Putting a call to an Ecclesiastes-esque call to enjoyment in the mouth of the rich fool to which Jesus' response in the parable, fool, this night your soul is required of you. A lot of commentators and scholars struggle with that because they struggle to understand if these calls to enjoyment in Ecclesiastes are positive, why would Jesus put that in the mouth of the rich fool in the parable of Luke chapter 12? But if you see these calls to enjoyment as the resigned conclusion of the author of Ecclesiastes, there's no problem there. So that maybe even verses like chapter eight, verse 15 are meant to push us beyond the bounds of the book in our search for answers. After all, the verses that follow are not exactly brimming with optimism. Look at verses 16 and 17 of chapter eight. He says, when I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. In other words, God's work in the world is seemingly arbitrary. So that even if a wise man claims to understand what God is up to, he's kidding himself. Even a wise person cannot figure it all out. Going back to verse one, who is like the wise and who knows the interpretation of a thing? The author's conclusive answer no one knows. He goes on to argue that all the more in chapter nine. Look at verses one through six. He says, but all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it's love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. 
It's the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and to him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears as is he who shuns an oath. Verse three, this is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Similarly to the the declaration back in chapter two that the wise and the foolish experience the same exact fate, here the author declares that the same thing happens to the righteous and the wicked. He says that the, the righteous and the wise are in the hand of God, but it's clear that he doesn't view the hand of God to be a comfort. Again, from an under the sun perspective, the hand of God is very arbitrary. It doesn't matter if you're righteous or wicked, good or evil, clean or unclean. It doesn't matter if you offer sacrifices to God or not, he says. The same thing happens to the wise and the foolish in the end. Same thing happens to those who walk in the light and those who walk in darkness. Even the the declaration that, that life is better than death, verse four, isn't as hopeful as it might seem. He says, a living dog is better than a dead lion. We all know what a lion's like, right? Majestic, strong, associated with royalty. There's a reason that Aslan was not a dog. A dog in ancient Near Eastern culture was a despised dumpster diver, an unclean scavenger. David and Goliath, the story there, Goliath looks at David in his scrawniness and calls him a dog. That's the animal that the author of Ecclesiastes associates with life. He basically sums up the benefit of living in one word, consciousness. That's the win. You're conscious. When you die, you're not conscious of anything, he says. The dead know nothing. They have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. At least the living know something. If only what the living know weren't so depressing. What do the living know that the dead don't know? Verse five, the living know that they will die. Like, that's the win here in Ecclesiastes chapter nine. Knowing that you will die is certainly better than being dead, right? We would, most of us agree with that. But it's not really a great consolation prize either, is it? Like, what, what do you do with this? How do you keep from focusing on the reality that we're all gonna die? Answer, which he's already mentioned at the end of chapter five, God-ordained distraction. Again, coming back to the enjoyment passage, the call to enjoyment, chapter nine, verse seven, he says, go, eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart. God's already approved what you do. Let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that's your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might for there's no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Going back to the the end of chapter five, the author declared that the best we can hope for under the sun is for God to distract us by giving us good things and the power to enjoy them so that we might not spend too much time thinking about the vanity of life and the reality of death, which helps to make sense, I think, of the language of God's approval in verse seven here. 
that God has established the kindness of distraction in the author's estimation that, that it's the lot, it's the portion that God has given us under the sun. Verse nine. So that he says, enjoy it while you can, verse 10, because there's no enjoying anything in the place of the dead and that's where you're headed. Closing out this morning's passage, in verses 11 and 12, he says, again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Again, he says, God's activity, it's arbitrary. No direct correlation between action and consequence. It's all time and chance. Like a fish swimming along in its own little world one moment, snared in a net without breath the next, thrown into a live well, perhaps. Like a, a bird soaring through the air one moment, lifelessly caught in a snare the next. He says, this is where you're headed. You don't know when, you don't know how. Place of the dead, he says, will inevitably come calling where there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom. Which begs the question, as has been the question every single week of this series, where in the world is the hope? The truth of the matter, and I think this should humble us, is that we cannot fully understand or comprehend the work of God, his activity in the world. Isaiah 55, verses eight and nine. God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Or how about Job chapter 11, verses seven and eight? Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven, what can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? Or maybe the most famous verse associated with the, the incomprehensibility of God in, in his fullness, Romans eleven thirty three, 33, where Paul declares in this doxological moment of worship and praise, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. He's not a car engine to be taken apart. He's not a science experiment. There's much having to do with God's activity in the world that we cannot fully comprehend. And yet, and praise be to God for this, the Bible could not be clearer about God's redemptive work in Jesus Christ. And I don't know about you, but I'm thankful for that because without Jesus, we'd all be incredibly hopeless in this place this morning. We wouldn't even be in this place this morning. That the broader canon of scripture teaches that this is all headed towards something more than a lack of consciousness, right? That there is, in fact, something on the other side of death. The bodily resurrection of both the just and the unjust. The unjust to judgment and eternal conscious punishment in hell as Jesus himself taught over and over again. And the just to eternal conscious joy in the presence of God in the new heaven and earth. Psalm chapter 49, the psalmist says it this way. Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. But God, he says, will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol. That the gospel declares, and many of us, we know this, that God must do it. God has to do it. Right? Going back to, to last week, chapter 7, verse 
20, the author said, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. That the just are not those who trust in their own moral ability to merit God's favor. The just are those who believe and trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone as our means of justification. That Jesus took our sin upon himself and in turn, uh, in return, gifts us his perfect, obedient righteousness by grace alone, through faith alone. Let this blow your mind this morning. If you come back to chapter 8, verse 14 of Ecclesiastes, the author says something and he bookends what he says with the declaration that the statement itself is vanity. He says, there's a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity thought about this this week, struck me in a, in a mind-blowing way, that the very thing that would cause the author of Ecclesiastes to shout vanity is the very thing that causes the Christian to shout hallelujah, wonder of wonders. That the righteous one, Jesus, had it happen to him according to the deeds of the wicked, you and me. He got what we deserve so that the wicked might receive according to the deeds of the righteous one, Jesus Christ. We get what Jesus deserves. Like, no wonder Martin Luther called it the great exchange. Perhaps an even better title, the greatest exchange. Or how about the most gloriously lopsided exchange in all of human history? Because that's what the gospel is. If you're not a Christian, man, I implore you to, to put your trust and hope in the risen Savior and King Jesus Christ, even now, even in this moment, to see that there's something so much better than, than what the author of Ecclesiastes is advocating for, that there's hope above the sun to be found in Jesus Christ, that in him we're safe in the hand of God, which, by the way, is the same glorious truth that the hearts of us Christians need to grab hold of this morning. I'll leave you with a quote. Philip Ryken, in his commentary on this morning's passage, he says this, for the faithful believer in Jesus Christ, the hand of God is an image of comfort and assurance. We know that the hand of God is a hand of love. We know this because we know that the hands of Jesus were pierced for our transgressions when he was nailed to the tree. This, he says, gives us the hope and the faith to leave everything in God's hands, all our burdens, all our trials, and all our cares. The Savior who loves us, he says, and died for us will also care for us. I don't know about you. I don't just need to be reminded of that daily, but by the moment that God's hand is a hand of love, a hand ready to receive all of your burdens, all of your trials, all of your cares. What do those look like this morning? Maybe in our context, it's week one of parenting your child in a new year of school. Maybe it's what you see when you turn on the news or scroll through your feed and see the violence and sexual scandal that fills our world. Maybe it's seeing those who once made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ recanting their worldview. And on and on and on we could go. What are your burdens? What are your trials? What are your cares? 
Because what the Bible teaches when we look above the sun is that there's a savior who loves us and who died for us and who cares deeply for us. And if we will run to him, his hand is a hand of goodness. His hand is a hand of wisdom. His hand is a hand of power and his hand is a hand of love.